You're listening to Medicine for the Resistance. Okay, we're all here now, and this is actually, we're back after a summer of being off. How auspicious is this occasion that Omar, you get to open up the show for this season. (laughs) That's right, that's right. And so I, I just want to say, I will set the ba- the barrier so high, it will be well, yes, impossible yes. to move. But anyway, so yes, so we are here with Omar Alakad. Um, I first encountered Omar uh, through the book American War, um, which mm-hmm. I, to my embarrassment, I picked up by accident. Um, I've been listening to Canada Reads and. Uh, it was a number of years ago, and Tamil Pennicut, uh, I was in, in my Battlestar Galactica phase, and he was defending American gods. And so I went to chapters, and I forgot the name of the book. I knew it was American something. And so I picked up American War, and I was a third of the way into it before I realized this was not the book he was talking about. <laughs> I kept waiting for these foreign gods to show up, and it wasn't happening. Anyway, it was a really, really good book. I really, um, I enjoyed it. It was a very happy, uh, it was a very happy mistake. American Gods is also good. Um, but I will say, I will say that when I tweeted out an observation I had, um, because we had just talked with Daniel Heath Justice about uh, where are Indigenous people in, in, in futurisms? Where are we? What happened to us? And so yes. when I tweeted out my observation about our lack of presence in American Gods, Omar's response was really thoughtful. And I appreciated that um, because when I tweeted out something to Neil Gaiman, he was not not thought so gracious. Um, So I really, I really appreciated that. And I only bring this up because in reading What Strange Paradise, which is what we're talking about today, I wasn't expecting Indigenous presence. It's set in the Mediterranean. It's a story about migrants crossing the Mediterranean Sea and landing on what I think is a Greek island, but it, I, as far as I remember, it's, it's unknown. Uh, it's not specifically identified. Yes. And yet there we were in the Cleveland t-shirt. And I was like, yes, <laughs> I love it. I think I actually cheered. <laughs> I love it so much. It was an important part. It was a, an important piece in terms, I think, uh, of shaping the character of the West, because that's what you were doing. So often you were contrasting Anyway, it's just such a great book. Go on, Kim. I no, I I agree. I had not either, Omar, heard of you until you know we've booked you for the show, and Patty mentioned your novels. And let me tell you, I just started reading um, both of them. Like it was one of those things where I am literally so intrigued with your incredible writing style. I started reading chapter one of um, your first novel and I was like, wow, and I'm in. And then I was like, oh, but we're talking about your second novel. So I've got to start reading some of that. And I'm in, and I I just first off, you're an amazing writer. I, I am just blown away by the level of just, it's, it's incredible. You just drew me right in. I'm, I'm so intrigued. I'm literally going to be reading both of your books um, 
you know, simultaneously now, I'm just going to have to flip out of one and flip into the other as, as uh, I go on through this. And you're talking about topic matters that are so timely. I think that is also what was riveting. One, I'm all about, I'm a futurist. I love sci-fi. I love the idea of, you know, um, apocalyptic type novels. Uh, that's something that I find intriguing. But just even with, uh, you know, how you are talking about in the second novel, you know, this idea of migrants and, you know, this idea of the refugees, you know, and how this process can be seen through the eyes of a child, I thought was so, or children, because it's actually both of the characters, the main characters are, are young people, um, I thought was just intriguing. And where did this come from, Omar? When you put this together, where, where did that come from for you? Um, well, first off, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you both. That was, that was incredibly generous. Um, and and I, I really do appreciate it. I, um, um, so, so one of the great things you get, you get the privilege to do when you're a published author is come up with a very clean Genesis story after the fact. You know, like this happened, this happened, and then I wrote a book, and it, it makes it sound much more orderly and, and far less chaotic than it actually is. Um, and so I've sort of come up with that kind of thing for, for, for What Strange Paradise. Of course, it's not nearly as clean cut as I'm, I'm about to make it sound, but um, a, a long time ago, I was, um, when I was still working as a, as a reporter for the Globe and Mail, I was in Egypt covering the aftermath of, of the Arab Spring. Um, I was born in Egypt. My, my family's all from there. And um, I was driving around one night with an old high school friend who was complaining about rent. You know, the rent's too high. That's too mm -hmm. high. And, and at one point I asked, you know, okay, well, what's, what's the, the price? What's the rent on a, an apartment in your building, for example? And he said, ah, well, do you mean the local's price or do you mean the Syrian's price? And I said, well, what the hell's the Syrian's price? And he said, well, we've had this influx of people come in recently and, and they don't have much choice. So you can charge them three times as much. I mean, what are they going to do? Go somewhere else. Um, and it became very clear that this wasn't just a, an apartment thing. This was, you know, you go down to buy fruits and vegetables from, from the stall down the street. They, they listen to your accent. They can tell right away you're not from there and they can gouge you. Um, so it was actually like an incredibly efficient societal mechanism for, for identifying and immediately exploiting the most vulnerable. Mm -hmm. the, the efficiency with which that system kicked in was, was fascinating and horrifying to me. Um, and then a couple of years after that, there was, I was reading a story about, um, a, a migrant ship that had, that had wrecked across the Mediterranean and had capsized. And the details were, were about as horrific as, as you would imagine. But one mm -hmm. of the things I remember really sticking out in, in the days that followed is that, you know, the story comes out, generates immense outrage for about 24 hours. And then everybody moves on to the next thing that we're all going to be outraged about. And, and that seemed to me to be the sort of defining model of mainstream progressivism in, in this part of the world, which is, it is sufficient for me to be uh, outraged at the thing, and then tomorrow move on to be outraged at another thing and move on and, and sort of... So the, the, the book is very much, it's, it's from, a, from a sort of manifesto point of view, it's trying to do two things. Mm -hmm. It's trying to right against that privilege of instantaneous forgetting and it's trying to dwell 
as opposed to thinking of people who have to suffer through this journey and quite often don't make it through this journey as a kind of monolith where everybody's interchangeable and you can just think of it in the abstract. I was very much trying to do the opposite. Now, whether I, I succeeded or failed in any of this is an entirely separate story, but, but that's sort of what I was thinking about when I started constructing the book uh, over the following years. So no, um, in um, American War, you also start off um, telling the story kind of through, she's a young woman at the beginning yeah. of the story. She's a child. Six. And, yeah, she's a child and then she kind of become, becomes a young woman. So, and so it's the same thing. So you're taught, you're, but these are not young adult novels, which is usually where we would get, you know, kind of the story told through, you know, like told through Harry Potter or whatever. Or the Hunger Games. These are not young adult novels. They're very much, you know, kind of, you know, for grown-ups. I guess I'm kind of curious about that, about your choice, uh, your your choice of narrators, because you've got, and then you've also got um, a general, you know, or you know, like a, a big military figure in both books, who's kind of wrestling through his own life and his and, and his and his own choices, and and so I'm curious about kind of. Your, the way you use the, these narrators to, to tell the story, but how did that emerge? So in, in the case of, of sort of What Strange Paradise, which I think of as a kind of repurposed fairy tale, um, it's very much the story of Peter Pan uh, repurposed as, as the tale of a contemporary child, child refugee. Um, but it's also written in such a way that like, if I didn't tell most readers that, and you begin reading the book, it's the, the Peter Pan stuff is not kind of like, mm -hmm. you know, in your face, it's, it's very much uh, beneath the surface. Um, so for example, the, the, the Cleveland sports jersey, um, which you are the only person to picked up on, or they're not, it's not true, maybe other people picked up on it, but you're the only person to talk to me about it. Um, there's a part in Peter Pan where they're trying to disguise him, they're trying to disguise Peter Pan. And they, the, the scene itself is sort of this, this cartoonish, we dressed him up in Native American garb. Mm. And I was thinking about oh, that right. in the context of like the, the, the casualness of the othering in that, like how it was such a, like a drive by like, of course, this is what will. And I was trying to think of the modern analog for that. And it occurred to me that these sports teams who've had, have been, you know, there've been calls to change these names for decades and decades and they keep resisting. And like, so that was the sort of analog to, to, to that. There's a lot of things like that in the book that are not sort of specifically spelled out, but, but are mm. very much anchored to that original fairy tale. Um, so again, I don't, I don't know if I, write, if I write child characters well or poorly. I know that I am drawn to that part of life because I, by temperament, I'm, 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 I'm drawn to, to writing about things that make me angry and that usually sort of systemic injustices. And a lot of these injustices are, are built on a foundation of lies. You have to, you have to maintain this facade of, of lies mm -hmm. in order for the, for the entity itself to survive. And I think of childhood as, as the time of our most, maybe our only honest interaction with the world. Mm -hmm. I, I... All the constraints of capitalism and the, and the world we live in. I'm going back into the big, I, I, I was in my writing studio and um, the internet tends to cut out through my garden. I totally get that. <laughs> Sorry about that. That is okay. Because you've got We're... the one, um, what's his name? The Smuggler's Apprentice. He talks a lot about that facade and, and kind of the lies that the migrants themselves, the migrants have told themselves 
about what they what they need what they need to believe about the West. Yeah, I mean, I I, I think of the book as as kind of a a collision of two dueling fantasies. You know, there's the fantasy that's pointed from this side of the world that is engaged in by many people here, which is this idea of those people coming over here are barbarians at the gate and we need to do everything we can to sort of stop them. And then there's a fantasy from the part of the world where I grew up, which is if we can just get to the West, everything will be better and nothing will be worse. And the particularly the boat chapters are sort of a, a collision of these two fantasies. And one of the things about it is that reality, whatever that is, is made wholly subservient to the fantasies. Whatever people believe the world to be takes precedence. What the world actually is kind of takes a back seat, um, which is a really dangerous place to be as a society, but I think it's, it's where we are. Ooh, I, I'm, I'm just so titillated and tantalized by, um, you know, being able to kind of step into your mind and really see how you formulated these two stories. Because I noticed that, that in What's Strange Paradise and the other novel that you both, both of them have certain motifs, like the, the idea of the boat, for instance, and how, um, you know, literally that idea of collision you know, that idea of, of the boats being, because I'm not trying to spoil any stories, but the being catalysts for change, right? Um, and the impetus for change to happen um, in ways that show up in the rest of it. What, is there something that drew you to that? Like the idea of these boats or the idea of water, that idea of, of shifting over um, a, a, not even a landmass, a water mass. Like where, where does that all tie into how you created these stories? <laughs> um, that's an amazing background, by the way. That's, that's Thank you. Nice. That's an all-timer. Um, I... Uh, <laughs> I, I, I suspect that it has a lot to do with, with uncertainty. Um, mm. all, all my fiction, I spent yeah, 10 years as a journalist and, and journalism by definition is very much concerned with answers. You know, if you don't have an answer to who, what, where, when, how, uh, you don't have a piece of journalism, um, which is all well and good, but that's not how things are working in my brain, filling up with questions for which I have no answer. And so I tend to go to to fiction for that and have, have done so since I was a child. Um, the, the end result is that these books I write, uh, both the two that came out and the three I wrote before that, that were thoroughly unpublishable and I will never show to anybody. Um, they, they all sort of um, exist in a place of deep uncertainty. There's no prescriptive nature to them. There's no, you know, if you do this, this, and this, everything will turn out okay. <clears throat> that, that isn't, um, part of my writing process at all. Mm -hmm. And so I suspect at some subconscious level, I'm drawn to water and I'm drawn to that sort of the, the uneven, um, untenable ground as a result. Um, that, that movement, I think, is, is very much at the heart of what I think fiction is and what fiction does. 
Yeah, I don't read nearly enough fiction. I think, you know, we talk about this a little bit uh, on, on Twitter is, you know, me, you know, my, my to be read pile is like humongous because I just keep buying books. Like I'm, I'm that person, right? I, I'll finish one book, I'll buy eight, I'll read three of those, I'll buy 10 more. You know, just, you know, it's just getting bigger and bigger. Um, I used to read a lot of fiction. Um, me too. The last few years, it's been almost, not, no, not even almost, it's been like exclusively nonfiction. And that wears on you and like you said like it's it's looking for answers it's looking it's looking for explanations and there aren't always explanations and the explanations are often so complicated they shift from you know from one you, you know from from one moment to another there are certain threads that seem to run through like you know Carrie's often said that you know colonialism has a playbook and I think Patrick Wolk wrote it <laughs> he actually you know he copied it out and he figured, it out, he figured out what it was about it <laughs> but fiction allows us to explore the questions without yeah. necessarily looking for answers. It allows us to explore them in, in some really neat ways. And, you know, like you talk about the military being trained, you know, these soldiers who are trained to, you know, to fight war and, to, you know, and to pull that trigger and to kill people. And then they're put into this situation where there is no war and you, you know, it's, it's glass, not bullets. So that's like, you just do a really good job of kind of, of kind of evoking, evoking, evoking what that is because we have these ideas and the media only gives us, I don't know. I think you give us this books like this, give us a much more three-dimensional picture. That's it. Of what this, of what this experience is. Thank you. That's, I, 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 I think of it as, as sort of, my, my, my default statement on what, what fiction is, what storytelling is, um, is something that allows us to escape the crushing delusion that life makes sense. There's, there's a kind of inherent mm. irrationality um, in, in fiction that, that mirrors the irrationality of almost everything we do. Love is irrational, hatred is irrational, memory is a very irrational space. Um, and so I tend to, to go towards that. Um, and in the case of American War, I had, I had 10 years of journalism experience that I, I tried to filter into the world of nonfiction because that was my job. And I was left with all of this residual emotional content that I couldn't get out through that. I, I love this because I've always been passionate about novels and about fiction. And I know that part of my own process has been grappling with what do I really want to write? You know, um, I too, it's interesting. I've never actually worked in the field. I ended up going into finance, ironically, which is so weird when I never finished other past grade nine in math. I went into finance, but my background was actually public relations and journalism. So um, that's what I went to school for. So I'm curious to understand when you were, you know, a reporter and, you know, going through and, and doing all this investigative, you know, storytelling to some degree, how did that affect your writing? And, and what, you know, I'm sure with all of the knowledge you gained, you could have really probably written kind of a fact-based, you know, um, an anthology or an analogy of, you know, a certain circumstance, but you chose to write it in fiction. I'm curious to what made you go there. 
Um, I, fiction has been my first home long, long before uh, journalism came into the picture. I, uh, um, I got a short story in the school newsletter, uh, oh. the littering edition of the anti-littering, uh, what was it, it was a uh, Dirty Harry and the Tin Can Trash Man was my first published story. Um, and uh, it, I was hooked um, from there on in. Um, I'm one of those people who doesn't have uh, a very good answer to the question, where are you from? Um, I've been a guest on someone else's land since I was five years old and um, moved around quite a bit. And so I suspect that folks who have that kind of upbringing, which again, I mean, I didn't make a, the decision to leave Egypt when I was five. That wasn't, you know, that wasn't my doing that. Um, you, I think we tend to gravitate towards storytelling in general because you can alter the contours of the map to fit whatever yours. And one of the things that I tend to do in my writing, I think as a result, is um, I have... I have very little respect conceptually for the modern notion of the nation state as a, as a geopolitical entity. And that's in large part because I come from a part of the world where, you know, a hundred years ago, a bunch of British and French guys just drew some lines on a map arbitrarily and hey, we have Lebanon as a result. Right. Um, Africa. Right, so so, yeah. <laughs> so I tend to demolish that uh, as much as possible. So, yeah, I think, I think one of the things I do that's that's a little bit um, at odds with the way you're sort of taught to do it um, through the traditional kind of I say MFA model, but but I think you know generally what I'm what I'm talking about is this idea that like the 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 good writing the the good literary writing is is very much place based and and give me the real experience of being in New England and being in and there's been some amazing writing that's come out of that particular school, but it also doesn't fit very well for the kind of life I've had. Mm -hmm. And so I end up doing these things like you open American war. And the first thing you see is this map where I've moved borders around and sort of raised the sea level. And the same thing with what's strange paradise, which that Island is very much based on, <clears throat> excuse me. It's very much based on Crete. Uh, but it's, but I've given it an entirely fantastical flora and fauna. None of those trees are real. None of the stones. And um, that's a very acquired taste. And I don't expect everybody to sort of be on board with what I'm doing. But it's, it's, it's just what I do by nature of the kind of upbringing I have. And there's a lizard that makes a brief appearance. That's right. That's my, uh, my, my crocodile from, uh, from uh, the Peter Pan motif. Oh, right. Yes. Yeah. It, was, it, was, it was just such kind of a neat, unexpected thing. The flavor. For the kids to come across as, the, as, they're, as they're fleeing. There was a... Love that so much. There's a, a richness, if I can put it that way. Because there was a real bleakness in American War. In, in mm -hmm. my mind, it had that kind of Chickasaurus if I'm not even pronouncing that right. You know, like, you know, those films that are kind of told in that bluey grayscale, um, <laughs> you know, kind of had that vibe for me. Like when I, when the, when the images pl played in my head as I was reading the book, it kind of had that, that bleakness to it. Um, but What Strange Paradise really has that paradise vibe. This is, 
I don't know. That's not really where I was going to go with that. It was just, that was just kind of what I was, I was thinking, like just the richness of the scenery that you create. So I don't know in terms of feeling like you're on Crete, I don't know, but I felt like I was on the Island, <laughs> you know, and the same with the boat, you, you know, I, you know, the, the, the salt, uh, you know, the sea salt and the, you know, kind of the precarity of that fishing boat and the people that were trapped below and, you, you, you know, and, and all of that, you, you evoke that, that so well, but what grounds you, what roots you? I mean, you've talked about the fact that you've been a guest on other people's land since you were five. And, you, you know, in this kind of rootlessness, but something roots you, something connects you because that comes out very clear in your writing, the fact of connection. So what is connection for you? Thank you for that. I mean, I, I... I think it's the writing. Um, I I I don't I don't feel comfortable in really any situation um, socially when I'm sort of um, you know the the, the 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 nature of the sort of writing life I think is that you spend years kind of inward facing alone in a room hammering away and then suddenly the book comes out and you have to turn around and be the exact opposite of that. And there's a kind of emotional and psychological whiplash that kicks in when suddenly you have to do this. And, and I've, I've been doing it for years now and I'm, I'm as uncomfortable with it now as I was at the very beginning. Like there's been no, no progression into becoming the kind of person um, who's, who's, who's comfortable in, in that setting or really any setting. But then I sit down and write and as difficult as the process is, the difficulty never entails a sense of unrootedness. Mm -hmm. um, it's difficult, but it's difficult in a language I understand and speak fluently. Um, so when I'm in that space, the, there's a, um, like I never feel good writing, but I, I feel really good having written. It's, that's, that's sort of, the actual process is very, very difficult for me. And there are days, many days with negative word count, um, you know, where I end up deleting stuff from the day before rather than putting anything new on paper. And it's always frustrating and so on and so forth. But afterwards, there's a sense of, oh, that was a small chunk of life that was well spent. Um, and so I think maybe that's what gives the, the writing, if it does have a rooted quality to it, I think it comes from that place because in every other facet of my life, Again, you know, people asking me, where are you from? Well, I was born in this one place, but I left when I was five. And then I grew up in this other place where I could never, ever get citizenship. And then I moved to this other country where I'm a citizen, but I moved there at 16. So I don't really have any longstanding connection. Now I live in this fourth place. And it, it's this, you know, you're dropping a phone book of, of sort of on, on people. And it's, um, I think it results in, in the sort of person I am where I'm, I feel very unrooted most times, but then I go into the fiction and it's, you're anchored. I, I, um, I can both relate to really well. Yeah. Like I, I'm really that question. I I'm listening and I thought you really were supposed to land here on our podcast, um, you know, because we, we talk a lot about and it resonates deeply with some of the, the major themes, I think, of what 
we here on Medicine for Resistance deal with is that sense of of finding your solace, finding what we call the medicine, you know, finding that that thing that creates your groundedness in this colonial anti whatever space this is for us, yet you find your way to thrive and not just actually survive, but thrive in that space. And I really, it's, I, I really enjoy what you're saying when you talk about how what I'm listening or hearing, actually, maybe this is a better way of framing it, is how you have you have tapped into all of those things that may have made you uncomfortable, or made you, um, you know, a little uprooted, and yet you have made that the grounding for be able for being able to create this magic that are these stories and this, these novels. And, and I see it as almost a way that you are standing in your power. You've created this powerful outlay or outlet and visioning that I think is so unique in the way that you are standing up to represent people that may not be able to tell their stories in such a beautiful, grounded, an honest way. And I think that's um, very, very powerful what you've done, Omar. Uh, I really appreciate it. I too um, was born in England. We came here to Canada uh, when I was three. And I have, I, I mean, I've been here since then. So I've been able to have and build the roots in this space. However, that sense of, of being a visitor to some degree is always present because uh, while I'm, you know, got the Canadian understanding of things to some degree, my background, my ancestry comes from something so different. My mother's West, my parents, both of them are West Indian. So my culturalization is a little bit different as I stand in this. So it's, it's understanding and juxtaposing all of those different places to create a truth. And the way that you've done it, I find is, is really um, inspiring the way you showed up. Thank you. That's very generous of you. Um, I, I, I appreciate it. I, so a long time ago, I was, um, we, we, the Middle East gets pretty hot in the summer, you know, as, as everybody knows. And, and so if you can, you go on summer vacations, you go somewhere else. And so I remember one of my earliest trips was to uh, Paris and London. And so we go, we go, we go to Paris, we go to London. And I ended up having a very sort of British adjacent upbringing because I went to a British high school and did my GCSEs and sort of, you know, all of that stuff that, um, no one in North America has reference points for that I just kind of throw out there and hope, I get it. <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, so anyway, so the first time we end up in these cities, we end up in Paris and London, and we're walking around, and I'm still, you know, I was very young, and I'm looking around, and I'm seeing certain sort of architectural features. Um, so you know, the, the the street numbers on the sides of houses in Paris are these little uh, blue squares with white, right? You know, and and there's, and I'm looking at all these things, and I'm thinking it's really weird that these people decided to borrow our architectural things from Egypt are having no conception that what actually happened was that these folks colonized us long before I was born. These features ended up in our city and I just assumed they were ours and were being borrowed by these people. And it's just, 
you, you don't realize it till much later, but this notion of, you know, something like colonialism meets you long before you ever realize you've met colonialism. Um, and, and that's not just sort of like in the confused kid, kid looks at architecture motif, but also the way I sound, the, the, the reason I speak English the way I do is because my parents and their parents and who knows how many generations were firmly rooted in the idea that English is the winner's language. And if you want your kid to do well in the world, this is how they, which for the longest time, I was incredibly proud of that I sounded like this, that I could converse with, with folks from the West and they wouldn't be able to tell that I wasn't really from here. And it was only years later that I started thinking about the opportunity cost of this and the negative space of it. You know, the Arabic language that I can barely speak now, the culture that I missed out on, all of that as a cost to this thing that growing up, I thought of only as benefit, uh, only as this sense of like, okay, now, now I sound the way the winners do. Now I sound the way. That's a, that's a tough thing to try and think about clearly when it first appeared in your life, when the concrete was still wet, when the cement was still wet, and then it sort of hardened around it and you have to chip away at it now and kind of figure out a new way of thinking about it. That, that resonates, yeah. that resonates deeply with me. Um, just quickly to, to just kind of concur with you on that. Um, it, you got me thinking about my own upbringing and I have one of my mother, my mother is Antiguan and my father is from Barbados and is Bayesian and has a very thick Bayesian accent, which it's funny now because it's kind of mixed in with his British accent. So some words sing in Bayesian and then some come out, you know, he'll be, he'll sound very British and then go garlic in a very Bayesian way of saying it. So it's quite funny. And, and my mother too has a very slight undertone uh, in her, her speech. And she worked very hard to make sure that you would never have that right that you would never really notice it and i remember that when i used to try to speak in a bayesian accent or pick up on my dad's accent it was it was forbidden like it was just such a place where we were not allowed to go because like you uh, mentioned you know the winner's language is knowing how to speak proper english and I recognized at the time, you know, I, I kind of felt, oh, I got to please mom and dad. And, and that means I definitely can't speak that way. But I, when I go home and I recognize the flavor and the color of understanding the different dialects that we speak, I really do feel a, a level of wistfulness. There's a sadness that I feel because that experience, that that space of being able to have been proud in the way that you know we had mixed all of our different dialects of when we were coming over in the middle passage that's what formed that accent you know um i i missed out on that in some senses of the word and it really does it, it took me a while to recognize as well how powerful that is and also the sense of code switching 
you know, that we as people of different ethnicities do to fit into what we are told is this rightful way of being. And, you know, I have my, you know, my, my business girl, don't fire me, white girl voice, you know, that I will use. <laughs> I'm not even going to lie. That's what it is. I've got my very proper business white girl voice when, you know, I'm talking in a professional space, but then, you know, I may have my other voice that I will say for when I'm with people who I know that can be related to in a different way. And, and while it's, you know, we laugh and we giggle about it, it really does stand for us to take a look deeper at that this is yet one of those other places we sacrifice to being in what is considered the lands of opportunity, the, to being in this colonial capitalist space. What comes to mind for you, Patty? I was thinking because, because language contains, it contains, it's so much more than words, right? It's worldview, it's relationship, it's how we think about, you know, it, it's how it's it's how we think about our place in the world. Like, um, I I don't I don't speak uh, my language. I don't uh, Ojibwe. Um, my father does. Um, my son is learning. His girlfriend, his partner, is pretty close to fluent. Um, but I've read about, right, like linguists, so I've read about the language, and the Ojibwe is a verb-based language, so it's all about relationship. It's not about, it's not about things that, that I use, it's about my relationship to the world around me, and, you know, instead of dividing the world into male and female, it divides the world into animate and inanimate, um, and, you know, and, and even inanimate things have agency, right, like Lawrence Gross in his book, the Ojibwe, um, Anishinaabe ways of thinking and being will say grammatically, if you were going to say, you could say that your moccasin hit you, um, you, you know, that would work grammatically. It doesn't make any sense logically, but grammatically you could say that your moccasin hit you, um, but you couldn't say that your moccasin hit your socks. So inanimate things can act on animate things. So animacy only has to do with, with what it can act on. It doesn't have to do with whether or not it itself is alive. Everything is alive. Um, you know, oh, but wow. it's, yeah, it's really neat. It's a really neat chapter. Yeah. Um, it's, really, it's a really neat book. So when we sacrifice and we agree to speak English and we agree to speak English in a very particular way, because, you know, Omar just, you know, kind of circle back to the book that we're talking about. You've got this beautiful scene where mom is watching television and try and just repeating the words, trying to get the words right mm -hmm. so that she doesn't get ripped off in the marketplace. Presumably, I guess that's, you know. So when we sacrifice our language for the sake of being part uh, of the dominant culture, we're sacrificing a whole worldview, a whole way of understanding our place in the world. And that's really the first thing the colonizers do. And they've done it to all three of us in terms of finding one way or another to strip us, not mm -hmm. only from our place, because although I'm Ojibwe and I'm in, you know, kind of, you know, the larger Anishinaabe territory, I'm Ojibwe Anishinaabe and I'm in Mississauga Anishinaabe territory, right? So it's like being from New York, but living in Texas. <laughs> it's not quite the same. Like, yes, you're American, but New Yorkers are very different from Texans. Mm -hmm. So yeah, so I'm Ojibwe Anishinaabe, I'm Northwestern Ontario, and I will tell you, those are different people. <laughs> the language is similar, not the same. Um, mm -hmm. The way of living is not the same. It's the Northern Woodlands. It's a, it's a different way of living. So we're, all, so we're all kind of disconnected from our homes and disconnected from our language. Are you 
have you thought of learning Arabic or toyed with it? I've gone back and forth. I've taken several runs at Ojibwe and there's a lot of emotional stuff tied up with learning the language that I, I don't know, maybe I, I just can't get past that part. I like to learn about it, but not actually step into it. Mm. Um, I can speak Arabic um, and I can read it quite badly, but I can read it. Um, one of the things about Arabic is that classical Arabic is, is really difficult. And then there's a million flavors. So if I speak to a Qatari person, um, the, the sort of Gulf country accent and dialect is very, very different from what I'd have as an Egyptian. So Egyptian Arabic, which I speak, um, if I was talking to any Arab speaker, they would know within three seconds that I was Egyptian. It's sort of like speaking English and you're from South Boston or something. It's this really strong colloquial, you know, um, the home of most of the slang in the Arab world is, is Egypt, that sort of thing. The weird thing about it is that because I left when I was so young, I have the accent. My accent is firmly Egyptian, but I don't have the vocabulary. So it throws people off whenever I go back to Egypt, because it's the equivalent of me speaking to someone in English and saying, hey, I'm really sorry, but I don't speak English very well. I'd be like, hold on a second. You, you sound, you know, <laughs> so it's kind of a it's it's a weird space where they're like, what are you friend or foe? I'm not sure what's what's happening here, you know. Um, so I have I have that to struggle with. But if I'm ever in Egypt for for a long period of time, if I'm there for like three months or something, it starts to come back real quickly. quickly. And what does that feel like to you? You know, um, that sense, I, I thought it was an interesting wording when you said friend or foe, you know, that what does that bring up for you when you think about it? And how does that show up in the ways you've written these stories? Because I, I feel like there's a tie there. I, I've long tied sort of language to the idea of survival, the, the sort of, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm cognizant now, I wasn't for a long time, but I'm cognizant now of, of this fairly thick ledger that I keep in my, in my head of language-based survival tactics. So what I mean by that is something like, um, so I'm, I'm always pretty terrified when I cross the border into the U.S., when I go through TSA and, and sort of that security checkpoint thing for, for, you know, obvious reasons. The world is what it is. I'm an Arab Muslim guy named Omar. Like, we're, we, you know, it's never gone badly, but if it goes badly, it's going to go real bad, right? So for the longest time, my, my mechanism was you show up, you have all your paperwork, you know, you're ready to go. You say, good morning, good afternoon, sir, ma'am. You know, and then I made a switch uh, almost subconsciously. I don't do that anymore. Now I go in and say, hey, how's it going? Because I realized that good morning, sir, good morning, ma'am, is what all the immigrants are saying. Mm -hmm. That with my accent, maybe I can sneak through saying what the Westerners are saying, which is, hey, how's it going? And, and, and all of that stuff is just, it's immense waste of brain power. This isn't stuff anybody should be thinking about. There's so many better uses of your time and effort, but, but it is this part of this ledger of what you need to say and how you need to say it to get by through any situation. And so mm -hmm. the, 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 you know, I'm, I'm okay, fine. I, ha I have to live in the U S or Canada or wherever I, I can, I can get used to that. But when I go back to the old country, when I go back to the place, my blood is from, it, there's always like this undercurrent of sadness 
that I'm sort of doing the same thing in reverse now mm-hmm. where I'm, I'm trying to find my place of like, what do I need to say to not be thought of as foreign from here? You know, it's, it's, it's ideally, I wouldn't have to think about any of this stuff, but you know, here we are. Going home is hard. Like when that's not where you grew up. Right. I mean, I just, I just came back. We went, um, I went home this summer. I haven't been home very often. And, um, you know, my, I'm, my father's family is from Laxul, um, so Sioux Lookout, uh, four hours north of Thunder Bay. So like way into Blackfly and Swamp Country. <laughs> um, and, and I've been home a few times and each time I know a couple more people and it feels a little bit more connected. Um, but it's hard to go home. Like that emotional piece that you, t- that you, that you talked about, because there's, there's a shorthand that exists among the people who are home, who they, they, we will never have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, and that's hard. And one of, one of the things actually, you know, when we were talking about connectedness um, that I, that I've introduced into my book is, is genealogies, you, you know, the begats, right. You know, like, you know, like the Bible has begats, yeah. right. You know, this person beget that person beget that person. Um, and I started it with um, our friend Twyla's, story to kind of situate the trail of tears in real people um because our friend twilight in front of the podcast um her family walked the trail of tears and so i started off with, with that was well, i start off with my own genealogy and then when i'm talking about the trail of tears i include her gene- genealogy and um and then i asked carrie about hers if i could include hers while i'm talking about um about the about uh, the western passage and hers is short yeah right like it it you know, there, there's an unnamed great grandfather and then there's nobody and there's mm-hmm. nobody after that. And so when we talk about home, you know, when we talked about that book, Losing Your Mother um, by Sadia Hartman, like home is, we want it. And I think that's another theme in your books is this grasping for home. Yes. Uh, yeah. But it's hard. It's, um, it is. When you mentioned Omar, your, you know, the story of, of that sense of sadness that comes up, I see exactly what you're saying, Patty. It shows up in the books, you know, um, one, of, one of the senses as I dive deeper in is this sense of longing, you know, is that sense of the optimism that the characters feel or this idea that when they go west, you know, they're going to really find the comfort of home, or they're going to be able to develop that sense of home. And I like you, I like Patty, also understand that sense of when I go to my home, meaning we go back to the West Indies, and I'm still surrounded by, you know, my family, friends, I recognize, though, however, I still stand out like a sore thumb. You know, there is no, no way of me pulling out my accent, pulling on a dialect of, of a Bayesian accent where it's going to sound anything remotely like them. And, and I'd rather not embarrass myself. You know what I mean? Because you know exactly I'm not from there. It's, it's that sense of not being able to, to 
you'll hear the jokes, you know, those inside jokes or, or those animations that are really about the, the day-to-day lives of the people of these areas. And yet you may feel and see the joke, but yet you're still just a little bit outside of the space of that. And, you know, I also feel when I go home, a lot of my cousins are always like, oh, you got to grow up in Canada and you got all of these amazing things that, you know, I may not have been experienced in the same way. And I I sometimes feel this cognitive dissonance set in because while there is been you know, I, there's been some opportunities and I, I have air quotes up if you're watching or listening to this at a later day. Um, there have been these opportunities that we have been afforded. I recognize that there's sometimes the wistfulness and loss that I feel because I, I didn't have some of those experiences. Like my cousins watching the fireflies in the expanse of um, my, I have a great auntie who has a, a, a huge veranda that you know, sits over like almost like this meadow in, in Antigua in particular. And it's so dark when the night skies hit and it's uninterrupted and you can see every star and the, you know, the air and the, just the landscape is dotted with a thousand fireflies and the sounds of the night are so real. And for me, I'll sit there and be in heaven and feel that and then come home and not see the same landscape of the stars. And my cousins don't get it, right? They're like, well, this is just our everyday. And so I, I recognize and really resonate with what you're saying, that sense of wistfulness, that sense of wishing that we we fit but yet we sit somehow on the fringe or on the outskirts of this space of togetherness and and with that though you know what do you use for your medicine what do you use to create your truth in all of that it's such a good question i um i don't i mean i i I don't think of it as, as whatever set of circumstances has led to me being this guy in this place, living this life. I don't think of as certainly not equivalent to the folks I know back home who are sort of sitting in a secret prison somewhere because they said something about the government that the government didn't like. Mm-hmm. It's not, you know, the sense of, of feeling unanchored is, is not in any way comparable to, to that. And, and so here's the very roundabout way that I've, that I've sort of, try to to get out a sense of purpose rather than a sense of of I, I, I mean I feel the longing and I feel that that desire to have to have been the kind of person who like my favorite writers you know Nagib Mahfouz um, there's the you know Toni Morrison people who wrote about the place and they knew the place down to the core uh, I'm not, I'm never going to have that. There's not one day I'm going to wake up and be like, oh, Portland, Oregon. I'm going to be the Nagib Mahfouz of Portland, Oregon, because I've lived here long enough now that I know it to the core. No, that's ne- never going to happen, right? Mm-hmm. I do think a little bit in terms of, I go back to this a lot, this idea of like, you look back at, at sort of the famous writing advice from people like Ernest Hemingway, which is always about like, 
the terse tight sentences and the and the iceberg principle where you only say 10% of what you actually know and and all of this stuff mm-hmm. which has come to define the sort of you know MFA school of writing which is show don't tell and and you know etc cetera, etc cetera, withhold 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 which is great and has resulted in great writing and so on and so forth but it's a lot easier to do that when the canon has been yelling on your behalf for decades and centuries before you show up. And by canon, I mean the work that is published and the work that is accepted as being masterworks. I'm not talking about, oh, these are the only stories that existed. There's stories that have existed long before any of this stuff came along, but I'm talking about what's been enshrined. Mm -hmm. And if what's been enshrined has been yelling on your behalf long before you ever showed up and you can do something like, you know, I I go back to the idea of, of Faulkner naming one of his books, As I Lay Dying, knowing full well that people are going to go back through the literary lineage. They're going to find out where that's a quote from. They're going to, the reference will absolutely not be lost because the work has been done on your behalf. All of these people came along and shouted so that now you can be quiet. And I think of, of trying to write from, from a place of mixing lineages or lineages that haven't traditionally been considered worthy of inclusion in the canon in this part of the world, I have to do a lot of shouting. And if I'm, if I'm that generation of doing some shouting so that, you know, 20, 30, 40 years from now, somebody with my life experience or something similar can come along and be very quiet, mm-hmm. I am more than happy with that. That for me is, is a fantastic use of a writing life. Mm-hmm. And so that sort of keeps me going, that idea of, of setting aside the traditional advice as it relates to what I do for a living because it doesn't quite apply to what I'm trying to do and what I have access to. Mm-hmm. And so that, that at least gives me a sense of purpose that I think acts as a bomb when that sense of, of feeling somewhat frustrated at not being rooted in a place kicks in. I can, I can counteract it with that kind of mission statement and giving me a sense of purpose. That's really interesting because as you were talking, I was thinking that both of these books are on... Uh, they're not moored in place like the place is there but they're not they're kind of disconnected in in if unanchored you 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 know in you know the place is there and and it's relevant because you it has to be somewhere um you know the story has to be you know there has to be some kind of setting but it's rooted much more in the relationships in the relationships in you and the relationships between people um and and the way the relationships kind of show up like you keep giving little amir you keep giving him mothers yeah you know he's got his mother and then he's and then and then he's got you know the woman on on the on the fishing boat and then he and then he's got vana you you know he's so you you keep you know and then you you know the, the the you know and her former teacher who kind of helps them out you know so you keep giving him you know, giving giving him mothers. You know, the rooting, connecting him in the in these relationships. He goes from you know, kind of one maternal figure, you know, to to another, which, which I thought was really sweet. And then he also calls himself David at one point, <laughs> which I really loved because um, the Smuggler's Apprentice makes this comment about you know, there's three things you need to know about America. Everyone is racist, especially the ones who say they're not. Um, and for me, that was a really kind of pivotal thing because that took aim at all the NGOs and do-gooders. Um, 
you, you know, the work with refugees, because he also goes on to somebody else says, you know, well, not, you know, America is so many countries, is, is so many countries. And he says, yeah, but who are making, who's the one making decisions? And NGOs and my, people who work with migrants and, you know, refugee settlement houses, they also make decisions about refugees and about migrants. And I worked in a refugee settlement house when I was first working on, on my social work degree. And, you know, and, and there's ideas and beliefs, you know, kind of containers that we put refugees into. And, you, you know, and we kind of expect them to, to meet these kind of social criteria, whereas the government has legal criteria, we expect them to meet certain social criteria in order to be, I don't know, worthy of help or, or whatever. Anyway, so I just thought it was really neat that you would kind of just introduce the character of David who's kind of useless and shows up periodically with his report. And then Amir takes his name and I'm not quite sure if he takes it because he's trying to fit in and is wanting an Americanized name like the apprentice was advising them to take or if it was just, he was befuddled and that was just the name that came that came into his mind. It was, anyway, I just, I just thought that whole, these connections you know, because I, I think that's what you're rooting your stories in, not yeah. so much place. Place is almost background. You're rooting these stories in connections. And I think that's maybe what you do for yourself too, rooting it in, in connection that you give shape to in your fiction. Yeah, I think I think that's about as 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 accurate to the sense I have in my head as I've ever heard it put. Is this notion of of which again, I mean it's it's there's no correct way of thinking about this stuff. For some people. A uh, home is very much place. It's very much yeah. a sense of place. For me, it is very much relational. A home is a set of relationships where I feel comfortable, you know, the people I grew up with. And um, it's, uh, I mean, Nagib Mahfouz has that famous quote about um, home is wherever your attempts to escape cease. Um, and I, I think of that a little bit and sort of my attempts to escape tend to cease when I'm in those relationships with, with people I feel comfortable around. And so um that's just a mode of of upbringing right it's no better or worse than somebody whose sense of place is a place um mm. and so yeah i think i think the one thing that not only the two novels but a lot of my short stories and almost all the fiction that i that i write have in common is that sense of of a character not being able to point to a place or a culture or you know, not, not having an easy answer to, you know, what is yours? Um, mm -hmm. and, and that tends to drive, to drive a lot of the narrative in these books uh, is just, what do you do to, um, how, how do you, what does the first aid kit look like that you use to bandage this up, to bandage this kind of breakage, um, I think is, is mostly what these books are. Mm -hmm. Are you wow. working on something new? I know, I, I know you just published this one and you're all like doing the talking thing, um, wanting people to buy it. Um, but are, do, you have, do you have something else in the works or something that you want to do that maybe the successes of these books will allow you to do? Um, oh, thank you for assuming they're successful. That is, that is very <laughs> <laughs> I will say I'm, I'm, I'm certainly not moving like Harry Potter numbers or anything. I, I did this very much sort of... Um, the, the, oh, you will now that you've been on our podcast. Right, I was going to say, now you've made it. 
sales will skyrocket. <laughs> Thank you. I, I have very high hopes. I am definitely not going to be bitterly disappointed um, when, when I don't sell millions of copies, but um, I'm, I'm about a page and a half into what I hope will be the next book. Um, I, I, I don't know. I don't want to say anything about it because I want the right to, to run, run away if it doesn't work. Um, I have a bunch of short stories coming out. I wrote the introduction to a new uh, translation of uh, Arabian Nights, which is coming out this month. Um, it's a beautiful new translation. It's the first time an Arab woman has translated it. And um, I did no work. I mean, I did, I, I'm very much just sort of bringing up the rear here. I just wrote a page and a half introduction for it, but it's an incredible work. Um, and then a few more short stories coming out next year. But um, my hope, is that, I mean, if I'm being perfectly honest, my hope is that they make a movie out of American War, I get a ton of money and can disappear off the face of the earth for a while to just work and not have to take assignment after assignment to sort of pay the bills. Yeah, uh, but that's a very selfish, you know, um, I think the pragmatic way of thinking about it. <laughs> I, I was gonna say, let's call it in. Let's call it in, Omar. Um, I could see it. It's, you know, um, you know, Netflix, if you're listening, if you're listening, you know, Netflix execs tune in every week. <laughs> so, you know, the weird thing about it is that so, so, so Hollywood is, is a really bizarre place. All the stereotypes about Hollywood, as far as I can tell, are pretty well true. Um, so, for example, when I, there was some interest in American war as a property. So we had multiple bids. And I don't know anything about this process. So I asked for two things. I asked that they not tone it down. Mm -hmm. They not sort of give it the Disney treatment and that they respect the racial background of the characters. So it's mm -hmm. not like, you know, years later, it's like uh, Taylor Swift, a Surratt chestnut or, you know, like whatever. And those requirements, particularly that second one caused a bunch of companies to walk away. Right. And uh, they weren't subtle about it. Like <laughs> they, they didn't. Yeah, they straight up just said like, there's no bankable character who fits this 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 structure of this character, so we're done, we're out. Um, that's it's so that sort true. of place. So yeah. I, you know, um, I, I, I I'm I'm cautiously pessimistic. <laughs> well, <laughs> I I am going to cheerlead as okay, i said you <laughs> you are i am going to be like just drinking in the rest of these two books um american war and what strange paradise omar what a pleasure it's been talking to you um you're you have this really I'm, I'm trying to find the right word. There's an energy about you that I very much enjoy. There's this calm, actually what it is, there's a West Indian saying that goes, still rivers run deep. And that's what I feel when I, you know, through this conversation with you, that there's this incredible depth of character, that there is just this gentle, rippling feel to you and I am so so grateful that I got a chance to have this conversation you've really inspired me to be okay with my own process of coming into being with my writing and um, this has just been such a great start to the rest of our season I really appreciate you Omar thank you for joining us
Thank you. This, this was a pleasure. Um, I really, really do appreciate it. Thank you for putting up with my rambling, rambling answers. Um, uh, it means a lot. No, no. And I like, and I like the way you talked about being rooted in your writing, um, because I think there's a loneliness there in, in being, in being a writer. And, and I mean, I, I, you know, I'm working on my first book, so I'm kind of loath to call myself a writer at this point. But there's a loneliness to that process. Like you said, you know, you're kind of on your own. And, but, and I think these stories need to be told. Mm-hmm. These stories that, you know, these stories that you're writing and they need to be told in the way that you're telling them, you know, you, you know, kind of conveying that rootlessness that so many of us feel because it's not, so many of us are migrants in different ways, right? Like the Black diaspora is a story of, of, of migration. You know, the displacement of indigenous peoples in North America is a story of migration and, you know, like these forced migrations. And, um, you know, I've just started reading Roxanne Dunbar Ortiz's book, uh, new, her new book, Not a Nation of Immigrants, um, which is, it, it, it's just so interesting because she had, she says that so many of the people that America calls immigrants are actually refugees and they're refugees created by American policy. So these are migrants who didn't choose to come here. They're coming here they're fleeing things that america has done abroad in the hopes that somehow america is better than what it does over there you can find medicine for the resistance on facebook and the website www.med4r.com don't forget to rate share and support us by buying us a coffee at www.ko-fi.com slash medicine for the resistance. You can also support the podcast and so much more by going to patreon.com slash pay your rent. You can follow Patty on Twitter at G-I-N-D-A-A-N-I-S and at danish.ca, D-A-A-N-I-S dot C-A. You can follow Carrie at K-E-R-R-Y-O-S-C-I-T-Y, that's Carriosity, and find her online at kerrygoring.com. Our theme is fearless. <laughs>